Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is March 9th, 2022. We're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We are happy to be here, uh, ready to learn, ready to open our hearts to you in humility so that we can come away with knowledge of the truth. Father, thank you for uh, the scriptures which have been preserved for us. And as we examine them, we realize that your, your touch is all over the word of God. It is your thoughts. We thank you for preserving them for us, even in 2022. So Father, as we begin, we be, we're praying for word is truth. You know what is on our hearts. You know uh, if there's illness or uh, particular issues that we want to put before you, Father. You, you know what those are. But we pray for those who uh, are extended family members who have not trusted in Christ. We're praying for those uh, who are believers all around the world who are brothers and sisters in Christ that all of us may come to the fullness and stature of Christ. So we thank you for your word. We pray that you give us wisdom as we approach Romans today. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are studying in the book of Romans. We have been there for quite a while. And uh, we are focused, our, our attention will be focused on verse, oh, what is it, uh, verse tonight, verse 16, Romans 10, 16. Um, just to note, we do have uh, a website which has uh, all of our uh, sermons and Q&A sessions all posted. So what you get is raw word is truth. <laughs> this is us on there talking about anything and everything we want to talk about, especially in Q&A. So I know we don't have Q&A directly on uh, the SoundCloud on the website, but if you go, if you dig down into oh, those links, you can see the entire Q&A for all that we do. So some of our Q&A sessions, I must say, are very intriguing. Some of the questions and thoughts and ideas that come up, I think, are very valuable. So I'm highlighting that to say, go back and listen to some of our Q&As. They are, uh, you know, the, the questions have led us to those topics and the Holy Spirit has enlightened us to, uh, how, to how should we think about these things. So the wordistruth.com is our website, wordistruth.com, and you can visit there at your leisure. So we're going to get into the lesson, and we will have a Q&A after. And I think we, it looks like it's a lot of notes, but I think uh, we should be able to, to manage. Okay, so um, with that, let's look at the notes. Romans 10, 16 says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, 
Lord, who has believed our message. We continue to learn more as we examine Israel's failures. While we do not always want to focus on their negatives, we can learn some valuable lessons from their disobedience. Today's religion has adopted some of their same undesirable tendencies that we see today. One thing we know, we do not want to reproduce Israel's failures. Our purpose is different from Israel, and we clearly do not have the same destiny. But when it comes to the gospel, we have the same fidelity. So, as we think about Romans 10 and where we have been, it has been rewarding, I must say. We've been dealing with salvation. It, Paul started talking about salvation from the get-go, verse 1. Even though he really started <clears throat> dealing with the nation's disobedience and refusal to follow God in salvation. And so it is true. Without being uh, saved, how could they possibly be servants of God? So this was this is what we saw in the nation Israel and their failures. We 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 saw that clearly in chapter nine, and even chapter eight, as we examined some of those passages. Who is he that would condemn? Who is he that would hold the charge against us? Right, all those were leveled against God the Father's eternal purpose. So let's dig into this verse where we are tonight. Let's look at the first phrase, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So we'll, we'll get right into it. Uh, being a new racial group in Adam, the first objective is to believe the gospel, believe in the gospel. Only this way, only in this way could they be prepared for God's service. And that's the first point. How could they go around helping the nations, and the nations as Gentiles, if they were not prepared by uh, believing the gospel? So Israel was a new racial group and in Adam. Uh, Israel was not in Christ. They were in Adam. They were born in Adam, just like we were except something unique happened to us. We call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which took us out of Adam and uh, placed us in this, the last Adam, who is also Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So being a new racial group, God's objective was that they had a calling that was upon them, Although, really, for them to fulfill that calling, they needed to be saved. I have a reference here for Ephesians 3 and 6. Now, I just put this reference in so that we could at least note that the church does not follow uh, the way Israel was called. So Israel was, as I said, was a new racial group in Adam. So out of Adam, which is out of Gentiles, God uh, created this racial group called the Jew or Israel. And Israel came from uh, Abraham, Isaac, God's choice, his choices of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And 
Jacob, uh, you know his name, was changed to Israel. And he had uh, all these sons who are part of the groups or tribes of Israel. So, um, but one thing about them, they were not necessary. They were born in Adam, lost. Now, the unique thing about the church is this. I'm going to read about, read it in Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery, and although the mystery is not the gospel, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So the, the uniqueness is this three words, through the gospel. And... Um, the, the new racial group does not necessarily come through the gospel. They, uh, they, they come into the world with the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is incumbent upon them to believe in Jesus Christ as he was revealed in their day. That was the, the most important part for them before they could be equipped to serve they needed to uh, be saved themselves. And that was available to them, although that is where many of them failed, as we're going to learn tonight. So, because it says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So, we're talking, they should have, but they did not. And we're going to talk more about it. Point B, for the nation to be effective in their calling to evangelize the nations, this is part of their calling. It's not the only reason they were called. We should note that through this people, God brought forth the Messiah. He was from the tribe of Judah. And uh, he came from that line. And we see clearly how uh, the Bible you know, genealogies give us clear path all the way back uh, to the son of Judah and where Christ came from. And that even goes all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham goes all the way back to Adam. So we have a clear line of gene genealogies that talk about who, um, who Jesus Christ came from. And so this is part of the Jew, right? This is part of... Um, Jesus Christ is a Jew, and this is why. This is where he came from. So their, their salvation was supposed to be what helped them to evangelize the world. They were supposed to share what they received. Much in the way as we can't be ambassadors for Christ if we're not saved. We can't have adopted the ministry of reconciliation as we discovered that we all have. It is a responsibility we all have, unless... We come through the gospel. The church, you're not in the church unless you come through the gospel. For this new racial group that, uh, was, that we call Israel, they, it was incumbent upon them to believe. As we said, some of them did not. So I make the point here, it was necessary for them to be first, to first be true servants of God. If I, if I go to Revelation 7, 3, 3 through 8, I've never, I wouldn't say never read this, but I don't know that I've, I've made reference to it. Uh, but uh, I don't think I've read it. Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. He 
it says, do not harm. And this is in the tribulation, by the way. And this is what it says. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So, again, this is, this is, why is he saying seal? Because he's talking about the nation Israel here. The nation Israel was not the people of God. But watch what God does to establish the nation of Israel. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, uh, 12,000. I'm going to skip all the way down to eight. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. All of it equaling 144,000. So that is the nation Israel operating on the earth again right now it's not the people they are not the people of god they are enemies but as you see they're going to this is in the tribulation to come after the rapture of the church they are going to be servants of god again notice it says it right there until we seal the servants uh, on, of our God, right? This in their foreheads, the servants of our God. How can Israel be of service to God if they're not saved? And this, what we see here, every one of those who are part of this twelve thousand of each tribe, which make up the hundred forty-four thousand, are sealed as servants of God on their foreheads. What is a servant of God? And I'm going to turn to Revelation 12. This is not in your notes. 12, 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman here represents Israel and went to make war, went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And here it is. Those who keep the commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. So do they believe in Jesus? They hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. So yes, these are believing Jews and they are under the law as well. But they know about the new covenant now. They know that Christ, if they believe in Jesus, then they know that he is the mediator of this new covenant. Absolutely. So they are saved. Point C, putting the cart before the horse did not work for them and it does not work for us either. So I see John, and I use John 3 for this thought. John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can be can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, there you go. Jesus came right out and just said it. Nicodemus is going to, I would say play, he's going to tell Jesus exactly what is on his heart. Uh, and whether, even if it's wrong, how can you be helped if you don't tell or be honest with what's in your heart? Nicodemus, being a religious Pharisee, uh, he was from the Sanhedrin. He could have shuffled his feet. Yeah, I heard about that being born again. Yeah, I know. No, <clears throat> he didn't say anything like that. He said what was on his heart. How can someone be born when they are old? 
Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother, mother's womb to be born. So here we see the patience of Jesus Christ, which uh, we should have because we're going to get questions often uh, just like this. And we have to, you know, patiently uh, come to, you know, help the person come to an understanding of what it is the scripture is saying. It, but Jesus is in this position. So, but notice being born again was, was important for Jesus uh, to tell Nicodemus this. And here Nicodemus was a religious person and, and a well-to-do religious person. He had a high position in the leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin. So there was Pharisees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. There, there are several groups of rulers that uh, of people that ruled over Israel. And we're, we'll talk about some of those in a minute. But notice Jesus does not allow Nicodemus to put the cart before the horse. I mean, Jesus could have talked to Nicodemus and, uh, you know, not mentioned anything about salvation. You know, I'll just stop for a minute and think about this. When you talk to people who are religious, the thought is that you just keep things on the surface. And the religious people, you know, it's, Today, it's insulting to people to talk about salvation if the person is saved. For some reason, they resent you discussing salvation. I don't know why. I would love for somebody to ask me about salvation. And if they want to question me about when I saved, I would love it even more. I would, I would want to talk about it. I would want to understand salvation. And then, not only that, I would have questions for the questioner to say, well, let's talk about it. Have you believed in thus and so? What do you think about such and such? It opens the door for conversation about salvation, not on the surface. Oh, isn't the Lord good? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Isn't he great? Well, he blessed me today. You know, all these things people say, but they never get down to the nitty gritty about what does it mean? Like what? It, let's talk about it. And you meet somebody uh, you want to know whether or not they're lost or saved. I mean, these are things. Are they a brother or sister? And that's important to us as believers here on earth because believers are all we have. All are, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we want to, you know, fellowship with brothers and sisters. So Jesus sees this religious person. He is not intimidated by him. He's not worried that Nicodemus is going to be uh, frustrated by uh, him going all the way back to salvation, but he does it anyway. He does it. And Nicodemus stands there and reveals some things in his heart that we're reading today. He doesn't understand what it means to be born again. And he even says it in verse 4. How can this be? You mean, you mean, go, you mean go into the womb a second time to be born? Jesus answered, verse 5, this is the source of a lot of confusion. Well, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. 
Okay, so what is water and the Spirit? Most people run to baptism, sprinkling, and all this stuff. But really, Jesus is just talking about physical birth, meaning the water. You have to, the water has to break and you have to come through water. And then the whole, then he's talking about the baptism or, or being regenerated, not the baptism of the Spirit, but the regeneration of God, the Holy Spirit. And this this is what he explains in verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit, uh, by the Spirit. So flesh gives birth to flesh. Why did he say that? Why, why would he say that? Because Nicodemus talked about this. He talked about going into the womb and coming out again. So Jesus is clarifying. It could not be more clear. You got to have two births. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You're already here. You don't need to go back into the womb a second time. But spirit gives birth to spirit. So what spirit does the spirit give birth to? And he's talking about our human spirit. So when we are born in Adam, we're born spiritually dead. Uh, whether we have a human spirit or whether our human spirit is dormant or dead or inactive, all of that, the result is we cannot have a relationship with God because we can't understand who he is. You know, there's another scripture in John 4, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And yet, if you don't have a spirit, if you can't, if God has not overcome the separation that spiritual death brought to everyone in Adam through the, the Holy Spirit giving you new life and, and you will never be able to understand spiritual realities of which God is. So flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, then he chides him. He says, you should not be surprised at me saying, this is verse 7, you must be born again. So why shouldn't he be surprised? Because he's a teacher. That goes to verse 10. You are Israel's... Nicodemus still did not understand it. He says, you're Israel's teacher. So this is the position Nicodemus is in. This is a high t position that Nicodemus had within Israel. He was a leader. And yet, Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. So this is to say for sure that Jesus understood what it meant to be born again and he understood that Israel should have been born again in order to uh, be of service to God. Back to our notes. Point D, there was always a remnant of believers in Israel. So when it says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news, right? There was always a remnant. There's a remnant, even in this, what happened with what Paul says, that he's, he's part of that remnant. We didn't get to Romans 11 yet, which we'll get to. So, sure, certainly we're going to get there, uh, God willing. But there's always a remnant. So we could talk about that phrase, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. We could talk about the ones who did accept it, and we can talk about the ones who did not accept it. That's what that phrase allows us to, to discuss. Right now, I'm discussing the believers in Israel. Isaiah 10, 
20 through 23. Let's look at that verse. And let me, shall I just say, there are plenty of verses. If you would care to use your concordance to just look at this thought, just type in the word remnant and you will find so many verses. I just picked one that I thought could represent uh, what we're trying to convey here. 20 through 23 says, In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. See, so notice he's saying, yeah, a lot of the Israelites will not make it because of unbelief, but a remnant will. Because there is a remnant who will believe. Uh, Though your people be like the sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. You know why? Because God is the one bringing the destruction. The Lord, the Lord Almighty will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. So this... God is saying, hey, there's going to be a remnant. And the remnant represents believers in Israel. Just always know that. Even the one, the scripture I read you in uh, 12, 17, Revelation, it says the, 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 the woman is Israel, but we're talking about the remnant of her seed. Right? That's, that's who is, is there left in the tribulation, the remnant. That's important to say. Uh, it is not every part, everyone, unbelieving Israel. It is believing Israel. Okay, point E. What does it mean to accept the good news? Now here we just have a little bit of, you know, wordplay here with hupakuo. So this word hupakuo means to hear under. And this is the word we get. What accept uh, the good news? Which is not all the Israelites accepted the good news. What does that mean? Is hup akuo to hear under as as a subordinate? Now, just to note, when we talk about uh, a woman is under a man's authority, that word is hup hupotasso. Right? But this word it, it means to be under authority. But this word means to hear but under authority, okay? So that is to listen attentively. That means God has to have your attention and you must, in humility, step aside from your what you're doing to listen to God. By implication, to heed or confirm to a command or authority. Hearken, be obedient to uh, or obey is even uh, a translation. So because, the and, and another thought is to heed or conform to a command or authority. So the good news carries with it all of that, if you, if you were to look at it, because the good news is not, well, it, you could accept, you could accept the good news if you want to. If you, if you want to believe in the good news, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. God is not saying that. God wants you to believe in the good news. It is not only he does he want you, it's his will that you believe it. He commands you to obey 
or, or believe the good news. How do you, if you believe the good news, you are obeying the command from the authority of God. And all this comes from, this definition comes from strong, just, just so we know. And I know other translations will just say, um, but some will say believe, but more correctly, it should say obey. Okay, because really it's your being obedient to a command from an authority. So just looking at, so I've termed this the obedience of faith. And it really just speaks to the fact that God wants everybody to be saved. And he has done everything he can do in order that we do have eternal salvation. And he does I mean, it is everything. He stops short at nothing so that everybody can be saved. He paid for all the sins. He sends the Spirit uh, to go out and enlighten each person so that they can be brought to a position of faith in Christ. So, a couple of thoughts when we think about the obedience of faith. I want to read a couple of scriptures along those lines. So, Romans first. 16 and 25 and 26. Let's look at that really quick. We'll move quickly. Or actually, it's, uh, yeah, 1625. Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made, made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the nations might come to obedience that comes from faith, or you could say the obedience of faith. And so, so when we believe, even God commands us to believe. When we go out and talk to people, and we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is imperative. That is not... Uh, you know, what we call dative, the dative mood, it is the imperative mood. God is literally giving us a command to, to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you could, dis, you could disobey, you could refuse the command, but we should note that he is letting us know that this is his will. Not only is it his will, but he's telling us this is what I command everybody to trust in my son, in, in his son, rather. Also, um, Acts 5.32, which is a famous one. As soon as people, just to know, as soon as people see the word obey, they just, legalistic people, they just lose it. They think, well, that means you got to keep the, you got to have works. You got to be obedient. You got to, you know, and they think in salvation. It is not salvation at all. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things. Now, of course, if you look at the context, again, I'm trying to read a verse that's so far just trying to say what I want to say. I want you to make sure that this verse is in context. And if you look at the context, you'll see. But I'm just, for the sake of time, you look at the context, I will read the verse. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What do you mean, obey him? And this is where people get... Um, the thought that works are somehow intertwined with salvation because they see that word obey and it's not that's not at all it's really saying 
that we have, uh, we have complied with the command to believe in Jesus Christ. And also John 3.36 is the last verse which I will give uh, in this regard. So it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now the word believes there has to do uh, with pistis, or actually it's the verb pistuo. Right? It, it's, it is really just to believe, to trust in, to rely on. Right? So whoever does that in the Son has eternal life. But notice what's behind that believes. See, there's something behind it, right? Something supporting it. And let's look at what it is. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. We know, reject, we know rejection, they will not see life. The God's wrath remains on him. But when you, when you see it rejects the son, what is rejects? The word is not pistua, or putting an A in front of it would be a pistua, which turns it to Checking a in. Okay, great. Or which would turn it to a negative. So a pistuo is like not believe, but that's not what's there. It's apesto, apetho. And apetho means refuses to be persuaded refuses to be persuaded. Now, persuaded by who? Persuaded, persuaded into what? Well, God has a, you know, with, with the gospel comes God's persuasion. And that comes through God the Holy Spirit. Right? Without God the Holy Spirit leading us to this place, no one can be saved. So that leads us to point G. We must allow the Spirit to enlighten you. To the gospel message. So you cannot believe without being persuaded to believe by God and understanding the, me the message. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can get you to understand the message. He's the, he's the one who enlightens us to what the issues of the gospel message are. And if you refuse at that point, then you will not come to faith. So let's just Read the point G again. We must allow the Spirit to enlighten you to the gospel message. Uh, really, uh, it should be enlighten us to the gospel message. Then we have the option to believe in the Savior uh, before or after the cross. In whichever way he is revealed. So before the cross, we don't know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because he hadn't been revealed yet. But after the cross, right, we know it's Jesus Christ. We know who it is. He came, he did all the works, he showed himself to be the Messiah. And uh, so what do we see in Acts 7.51? You do always resist the Holy Spirit just as your forefathers did, so do you. And I, I have to emphasize this last point here, this thought. It is important that we understand that we, without the Holy Spirit, would never come to the gospel, understanding what it is. We would simply just go round and round with works. We, we would make an issue of ourselves. We would, we would never come to what the truth is. And it's, it's you know, people look at the, the gospel and think, well, it's, I understand it. It seems very simple to me, but without the spirit giving us that enlightenment, we would not understand a thing. If you want to know what you understand, 
apart from the Spirit. It is, go to Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. We're all under the power of sin. There is none who do good. Uh, and then if you keep reading, it says our throats are like open graves. The poison of vipers is on our lips. There, the way of peace, the, the word peace there is reconciliation to God. We do not know. There is no fear of God in their, in their minds, in their hearts. They, they're not afraid. There, there's no fear. They don't respect God. And they will not come to God. That's, and that's who we are in Adam. And that's not just me, that's you, it's everybody. So something must happen for us to be saved. <laughs> and what is it? It is God, the Holy Spirit, knocking on everybody's door to say, look, here's what the gospel is. Let me show you who God is and what his plan of salvation is. And he does that for every person who comes into the world. Now, God, the fact that we witness and God sends Israel out to witness or he tells us that we're ministers of reconciliation, that's grand that we get to have an opportunity to function in that role for God. That's just like it says in, in 2 Corinthians. It is as though God were speaking, that you are speaking on God's behalf. God is speaking through you. That's what it is. It, it is not you doing the speaking. You didn't come up with the salvation. You didn't originate this and it's such a, it's by grace and all of how God did it. It's nothing to do with you. It has to do with God and the good news. So, I had to emphasize that point because the Israelites were responding to God from the flesh. They were responding to God as though they had it all under control. Well, we got the law we know what we're supposed to do, and we're favored by God because of, of you know, our position as Israel. And then they were wrong. They were wrong. They did not come through the door of the gospel. And that is what is being pointed out to them. And it says not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Now, point eight. We already talked about those who did, and we talked about the remnant. of all. There was always going to be a remnant. But point H, which of the Israelites were in unbelief? And this is important, right? Uh, so this, you're, I, don't, I don't want to say sit up and take notes because you already have the notes. It's Isaiah 28, 14 through 17. You could sit up though. Let's look at this. Isaiah 28. We've been here a few times, but you saw Isaiah 10 discuss very similar things here. But I'm using Isaiah 28, 14 through 17. Here it says, Therefore, here it is, hear the word of the Lord. Notice, you scoffers, who, here it is, rule this people. Now, that is an important phrase when we think about this in Jerusalem. The, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. So who, who are the ones who do not believe? who remain in unbelief. It's the rulers of the people. And there was a lot of people. They were teaching people uh, the wrong thing. Right? So it's, it's important that we understand, especially when it comes to the failure of Israel. So God did not save Israel because there was a remnant. 
He say he would save Israel. In other words, there would be destruction decreed. And if we let's just read the rest of this. Verse fifteen: You boast. We have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead, and have made an agreement with an. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says: See, I lay a stone in Zion. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So th who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And he's going to be the dividing line between Israel. Just like Jesus said, I'm not come to send peace, but a sword. He says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away the refuge, the lie, and the water will overflow your hiding place. So Israel looked like they were the people of God. They looked like they were standing in uh, the place of God and, and, and you know, giving everybody what God said and, and God told them. And, but they were not. They were phonies. It's, they thought they thought that they had a covenant that God would they was going to be kept when there would overwhelming scourge came by. He, they said it can't touch us because of who we are. But you know what? They made a lie their refuge and falsehood their hiding place. They really never believed. And who is he talking about? You scoffers who rule this people. This is an important point because. The nation Israel depended on the leadership of Israel believing. When you go over to Israel right now, here's a good example. Do we have the leadership in Israel believing in Christ? Christ is the justice, the measuring line, the righteousness. The, do they have that? No, not at all. And I would say emphatically, no. They don't. That whatever Israel is over there now, they are not the people of God. In fact, just like it says, they are enemies for your sakes. Enemies. So note, that is, it is important for us to know that. So especially if we talked about it with reference to the gift of tongues, right? Why would Israel have fallen? And that the gift of tongues is about judgment. It's because... Not only the, is there just a small remnant of people in Israel who believed, but the leadership in Israel did not believe. And here's a good example. We're going to scoot over to John 11. John 11. And we're looking at verse 47 through 53. Uh, John, here we go. Here we go. Now, this is after Jesus raised... Lazarus, right? He, he resuscitated him and Lazarus came out of the tomb. So 47 says the chief priest, no, no, yeah. So the, then after all of this, the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now notice, this is all the leadership of Israel. Sanhedrin is the political arm. Pharisees were the religious arm. Chief priests were also uh, heavy, they, they had a heavy role in the leadership of Israel. There was the chief priest, but there were also chief priests, right, who, who were previous priests. And and, um, and if you notice, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. But there were other priests 
who were uh, also there as well. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, called the meeting Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Notice who, who, who they think they are. It's their nation, their temple. Why? Because they're the leaders. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for, one, for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but the high priest that year, uh, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So, now listen, get this. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. Uh, they wanted to kill Jesus, no doubt about it. Yeah, this, this is a tough thing when you talk about the nation, the leadership in the nation, all coming together, all in agreement that we must kill Jesus. We don't care if he's innocent. We don't care if he's done these wonderful, marvelous works. We got to kill him. He's got to die. 1 Corinthians 2.8 is our last scripture, and there's other ones along this line. 1 Corinthians 2.8. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Now, we're talking about the mystery here, obviously, but notice, the rulers He's talking about the leadership in Israel. They didn't understand it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If I ask a quick question, who, cru who crucified the Lord of glory? The rulers of this age. That's the Jews. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, right? All of, uh, the all of them, right? The chief priests, they all got together and they decided, let's crucify him. And that's what they did when, when they captured Jesus. They didn't take him to Pilate. They took him to the chief priests. And they condemned him. Then they took him to Pilate. Well, then they might have stopped at Herod's first. But then they eventually took him to Pilate. So, uh, and so those are the rulers. That's the rulers. That represents Israel. You can't have the nation of Israel. When it says he came to his own, his own did not receive him. We know it, because, it was because of Israel's leadership that had rejected Christ. Yes, there, was people who, there were people who believed in Christ. And I'm going to call them the remnant. Only a remnant went on to Pentecost and were a part of the church age. And, and Paul talks about him being one of those. God did not forget his people, which he foreknew. He says, I, my, I myself... I, I was an Israelite. No, God's not casting away his people. That's not the case. Israel has, has an opportunity just like they had before, but they won't be in Israel if they believe in Christ in this age. They'll be in the church. So they should know that. So then we have scripture. Uh, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. This is the second half of the, of the verse, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Meaning, for Isaiah to say that, he's making that reference right there to Isaiah 53, verse 1. And it speaks to the issue 
of their rejection uh, of Christ, right? And that's in Romans 10, 1, where Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's God's will, that they get saved. They were lost. That is what we ought to know. So Paul is, as we're dealing with this issue of their failure, remember we said they put the cart before the horse. They didn't believe in the, the Savior as he was revealed. They resisted the Holy Spirit. It became part of what they did, generationally speaking. So this was a problem. So Paul references Isaiah 53 in verse 1 here. And um, point B, Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you didn't know better, you would think you are reading a passage in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 is so clear, so poignant when it comes to what is being said about the Lord, that how can people disregard this information? You would have to be blind in order to do so. <laughs> so why do I use that word, that term? Because blindness, like it says, in part has happened to Israel. How's this blindness? Because of the refusal, the stubbornness that they have in resistance of Jesus Christ. It's called blindness. It is this hatred. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. It is satanic hatred that uh, Israel was under when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, who had done miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, day after day after day. It was common that these things were happening. So much so that they, the, the leadership in Israel got together and said, we have to kill him before everybody believes in him. We've got to kill him. That's how evident it was that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. God demonstrated this. Point C, we should review some of the visible references to Christ from Isaiah 53. We're going to go. Now, obviously, you can go to Isaiah 53 and read a lot of this. And listen, every verse speaks to Christ. I just pointed out some things that you should just be aware of that is right there. And like I said, it reads just like it's in the New Testament. But yet, this is something that was written 700 years before Christ came on the scene. So let's just look at it. The first verse has uh, who, who has believed our message. In other words, is a reference to the fact that Israel would be mixed, divided over Jesus Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's talking, the arm of the Lord is a, a phrase for the Messiah that is throughout the Old Testament prophets. The arm of the Lord. And he's talking, who has believed it? And he's, you know he's talking about that, but look at some of the things that it says. And I'm just going to go through my notes, but you could read the entire chapter. I would, this is one of the chapters I, could, I remember at one point I was committing verses to memory. And I took these uh, 12 verses and I committed them to memory and that's easy to do 
more so. Forget about memorizing it. Let's think about what it means. Memorizing what it means. That's better. So anyway, here, Isaiah, the, the second point I have is he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. What man could, there be, could they be speaking about that has taken this role? Pierce for our trend, not for his, for ours. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his, ours. The punishment that brought us peace, the word peace here is a reference to our reconciliation to God, the Father, was on him. Christ is the one upon whom, he's the Lamb of God upon whom the sins of the whole world were laid. By his wounds, we are healed. And that is not talking about physical healing. That is a reference to reconciliation. That's verse 5. Point number 3. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And you know what this is to say? This is talking about our wayward uh, depravity in Adam. Now, he's talking to Jews here at this point, but really it's to all of us. It's in the context of Judaism, because that's where Christ came from, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But in, es in essence, it speaks to our total depravity. Look at this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Isn't that just what it says in Romans 3, where it talks about uh, we wouldn't even want to serve God, even if we had the opportunity? I must read that, Romans 3. Let's get to it. I know you guys already know all this stuff already. So Romans 3, here it is. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. This is Romans 3.12. And together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have turned away. Pretty much the same thing it says here. We all like sheep. We have all gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. Wow, you couldn't have written this better even after the cross. It is literally exactly what happened. And then here is verse 7. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Look at that. An innocent lamb. Just like, what did John uh, the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Look, he said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it, so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, yet he opened not his mouth. And then, um, that was, uh, where is that? That's ver that was our point number four, our point number five in the notes, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Notice, why was he cut off? Cut off means he would die. He's going he's gonna to be dead, right? Uh, for the transgression of my people was he punished, right? There it again is Christ. He died as a result of us, our sins, right? And that's a death when our sins were imputed to Christ and judged. That in itself is a death. But then when it was all done, it's, he said, it is finished. And then he physically died. So, so there are two deaths on the cross where Christ died, not just one. So, so for the transgression of my people was he punished. And number six, 
in our notes. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. In other words, notice, he was considered wicked and yet and with the rich in his death. Remember, in the Gospels, what do we have? Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea worked together to get the body of Christ and put him in a rich man's tomb. It says, though he had done no violence, he didn't do anything wrong, he was innocent, he was innocent Lamb of God, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's 53.9. And then we have 53.10, yet it was, the Lord, it, was, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. That's 53.10, it was the Father's will to impute the sins of, of the world to Christ. But not only did he just impute them, he punished him, he crushed him as a result of, of that. So there's two things, not only the imputation of our sins, but the punishment, the judgment of those sins in the person. Of Christ, who is our Lord. And then, uh, point seven, yet it was the Lord's will to, oh, that was the one we just covered. Verse, uh, point number uh, eight, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. Notice, his life an offering for sin. Just like the substitution that Israel talked about, that they, they, they had the morning and the evening sacrifice, Israel, it was very common about substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf. It wasn't just, well, just say a few Hail Marys and for, you're forgiven or, or you just, as long as you're sincere, you're forgiven. No, an animal had to die. And that blood, I mean, being a priest in Israel, I don't think I would want to be a priest because I don't like the sight of blood as it is now. But imagine the priests in Israel, what they had to do in order to depict what God was trying to show the world in evangelism about how there would be a substitute coming for us. And notice, listen what Isaiah says here. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, even though he does this and he's cut off, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You listen, he's not done. He's alive. He will continue because he will be resurrected. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. In other words, he, after this is resurrection and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Many will be justified in Christ because of his work, because of the fact that he is the, the one who fulfilled the covenant and all of the types and shadows of animals would die, even from the very beginning of Cain and Abel. Uh, well, Cain wasn't justified, but Abel certainly was. Because it's a little notice, and he will bear their iniquities. Ten, or point ten, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow, it even talks about after his work, 53.12. I would certainly say, as far as I could see, this is clear, right? This is, there's nothing in here that I could assign to any other purpose or person or situation. It's not an analogy. It's not a thought. He's talking about 
the Messiah. And how do we know? He says it from the very beginning. We call him the Lord's arm. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And our last point, point D, we're just going to close with this thought. We can see the Apostle Paul understood this chapter very much in the same way we do. Christ demonstrated who he is to the nation Israel. And just like it says, he came to that which was his own, but his own, the leadership of Israel, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. That's John 1, 11. We're going to stop at this point, but we're going to open up uh, the floor for any questions you may have about anything, not just about this lesson, but we have covered a lot of ground here. So in these just two short phrases, I will pause uh, to, to see what your thoughts are. Well, that certainly evoked a lot of thought. Um, one of the ones that I had was about the feeling of the 144,000 that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, um, what, so we, this doesn't, this is not the same feeling as in Ephesians uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Um, this is a, a different kind of feeling. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. It's not a deposit of the Holy Spirit, in other words. That's right. Yeah. So sealing is a mark of ownership. For God to put his seal on them is a mark of ownership. Very similar, if you look at what uh, Revelation 13 talks about, that you would receive the mark of the beast. And these are... All the world wondered after the beast, and it, it, he compelled it all to receive a mark either, either in their forehead or in their hand. What is that? It signifies ownership. People are giving themselves to this new world ruler, who is also, it's not just a political ruler, he's a religious ruler. He is literally telling people he's God. And people are receiving that and uh, receiving the sign of ownership over them, just as the servants of God, the Jews, those 144,000, receive a seal, the seal of God on their foreheads, which is representative uh, of the fact that they belong to God. They are the servants of God. So yes, it is, well, our seal is something totally different. It is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to redemption, of God's purchased possession. It's ownership of God as well, except for the fact that it is the deposit of the Holy Spirit, who is literally a part of uh, what God has given us in this age. I'll pause, Dwight. Sure, thanks. Thanks. No, thanks for the thought. Yeah. So, you know, Revelation... Um, it's kind of interesting. It does not read exactly chronological. You know, we could take some time and look at some of those thoughts. I still, when I go back to the previous recordings on Revelation that we did, I think they are still sufficient 
to give a good understanding and outline of uh, the book of Revelation. I think we covered a lot of those thoughts. Uh, we talked about the sealing, and uh, we tried to go verse by verse. But what I would, I would admit, we didn't go as uh, deliberate and slow as we do now. Uh, but we, we took our time. We, we started off going a lot faster, but it got so interesting that we took our time. So those um, recordings are still on the website for you to review. Uh, but yeah, you know, the ceiling is different, and um, it's a good question, I would say, that we at least understand there's a distinction between what happened in the ceiling of Israel and the ceiling of the church, those who are in the church. It happens the moment we believe in Christ. I pause. Other thoughts out there? Sure, go right ahead, and in, in lieu of uh, others who are gathering their thoughts, perhaps. But go right ahead, Dwight. Okay, one was just a note that when we were talking about the lineage of Jesus and going back to Abraham and before Abraham was Adam, well, we know that Jesus is not of Adam. He's not of Adam's seed. So um, the line doesn't necessarily draw directly to him because it wasn't it wasn't Joseph who was his his uh, father. It was the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary. Um, so really, that that the paternal paternal line basically ended at Joseph. Well, um, I would say it it, it matters. Well, we think about it this way because even though we have Joseph and Mary as Jesus's parents, um, both of them uh, were descended from David, and they was. And the point was that the Messiah would uh, be in the line of David. It, it, it was a promise that David's son would sit on the throne, and he's talking about it in the millennium. So, who's David's son, right? And so Joseph. It, they're both sons of David, Joseph and Mary. However, on Joseph's line, uh, it was cut off because of the disobedience of the kings that were in Joseph's line. And I think one of them was the, the Kaniah curse, which said that uh, a son, you guys are so wicked, a son would not never sit on the throne, meaning you, you, you're not going to be qualified. But then... Mary's line does go straight to Christ and straight back to David. I should not say straight to Christ. This goes from Christ all the way back to David. So it fulfills that. So Joseph was not his biological father. And he was not his, I don't know if genealogical father is a word, but I'm using, I'm making it up as I go along. So he's not his genealogical father either. Mary is, even though both are descended from David. Yeah. Well, we have we have one lineage in Matthew, and the other one is in Luke, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And one's for Joseph and one's for Mary. Um, yeah. Our last thought was about the, the changing of administration. Um, so we know that Jesus ushered in a new administration, uh, the, the, a new um, dispensation. And we know that that dispensation officially started on the day of Pentecost. However, there were people in the generation um, where that transition was taking place who did believe, such as the apostles at the Last Supper, they did believe, um, so they weren't necessarily saved in Israel um, because they did go on to, to receive the Holy Spirit. At, at the day of Pentecost. Um, likewise, with the administration changing back from the church to Israel, um, the end of the church age is marked by the rapture. So, um, are we going to, are there believers who are going to remain after the rapture that are going to be Israel? Or are we basically starting with zero believers um, at the time of the rapture? Well, um, I would say we're going to um, start with zero believers because the rapture takes every church, it takes the entire church uh, and removes them from the world. And a church will not go through tribulation. Uh, it says we have not been appointed to wrath. The tribulation speaks of wrath. And so um, what we have uh, is the, uh, you know, a good explanation of this is in Revelation chapter 11, where even though, you know, there are none, God does commission. He brings to faith. Uh, he talks about Moses and Elijah, and they do, Moses, Moses and Elijah are, uh, prophets of old that both of them represent when we talk about the law and the prophets uh, Moses represents the law Elijah represents the the prophets and so Israel is stirred to belief through miracle signs and wonders God shows up and he brings miracle signs and wonders and it is reminiscent of what Israel is uh, aware of and uh, is is familiar with and these people come to faith as a result uh, a good good uh, an analogy of, of how that happens is what he gives in when you go to Revelation 11 it says I was in ver verse 1 I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court and do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So this, remember, um, John the Baptist came in sackcloth as well. And so these... these uh, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. And this is him calling Israel, because the, the olive trees and lampstands are all representative of what you will see in the Old Testament. So uh, these, these analogies. Uh, 
and even the the reed like a measuring rod, all of that I remember reading in Ezekiel how uh, this was also said. Uh, and there were, but this is when Israel was destroyed. There was no Israel, and uh, Ezekiel was told, "Go and measure the temple." I mean, what do you mean measure? There is no temple; it's been destroyed. But that is a reference to the fact that there would be. God is saying to Israel that I'm going to make a temple. I'm going to rebuild the temple. This is happening. So this is how He regathers Israel through, just like He did in initially through miracles, signs, and wonders. This is what happens. I'll pause. Okay, so at the end of the church age, we see a, uh, a, a solid, um, a definite dividing line between the church and uh, Israel uh, coming back. At, at the beginning of the church age, uh, we know that the beginning of the church age was officially marked by Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit came upon uh, believers and would indwell in that permanently. Um, but there were there were some, such as the believers at the Last Supper, who believed Christ. Um, so I believe they would have trusted him as uh, for their salvation. So I think even before Pentecost came, they were saved. And yet they lived to the day of Pentecost and were recipients of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So there, are, there were those who, in fact, as I said, all, really, as we're reading the Gospels and we're seeing that there were saved people in Jesus' ministry, um, many of them, survived through the Pentecost, which was, well, his ministry was three, three and a half years. So many of, of their, uh, these, especially as we're reading people at the Last Supper, reading about people at the Last Supper, so, Supper, Supper, <laughs> we're, we're seeing that um, they would most certainly have survived unless there was something cataclysmic happening at that time, you know, yeah, they a lot of the believers that were from what we are reading in the Gospels, when you think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all of them, his, they believed, they were saved. And did they survive to? Yeah, absolutely, I believe they were in the church age. Uh, even Jesus' mother was, in, was most likely in the church age. Uh, and we could go on, there are lots of others. I think Nicodemus. Uh, was in the church age, most likely Joseph of Arimathea. Why would they even care about him if, you know, uh, they thought he was some malefactor, somebody who was a criminal? They would not have uh, stepped up and... and uh, yeah. Well, claimed. and considering, considering all the, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people he performed miracles in front of that uh, remain nameless to us, um, they fall. They probably fall in the same boat. Yes. Where they, where they did believe. Yeah. So, you know, there were those. I remember there was one priest that said he would, didn't. He, he he was asking the Lord that if he won't he won't die, if, not to let him die unless he saw the Messiah. And he did get to see the Messiah, but then he died. But so it says. So it says, and uh, he did not make it to the church age. 
But of course, Jesus was a baby at that time, so it would have been thirty years, you well, know, or so. Yeah. Um, well, John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one. He did not make it, right? He was he was killed. Yeah. So yeah, it, there's a dividing line, yes, of those who are in the Old Testament and those who are part of the New Testament, or, or we say the the church, which has been going on now for over two thousand years ever since Pentecost. But we see Jesus preparing those disciples just before he left so that uh, they would understand what was about to happen. This was a momentous time for, we're talking, uh, a new dispensation was dawning. Now, imagine God had to deal with a lot of uh, people who were stuck in tradition and culture and all sorts of things and he had and he he attacked it he dealt with it and in the way that we could certainly say that the church is still alive today although so is uh, the insistence on religion and culture and tradition so we have work to do that's what that means we we have our work cut out for us as well That just reminds me of when uh, Paul had rebuked Peter. When he was, uh, Paul rebuked Peter, right? Because he was uh, put a yoke on their head and something like that. Yes. Uh, yes. Getting, yeah. Uh, just, you know, I guess Paul had seen the ushering in of the church age and he rebuked them because he was trying to get people ready for what was coming. Yeah, and you know, when we here's a good example of Peter, right? That you gave. Uh, they, and if I go to Galatians two, and um, we see that story unfolding where Peter, uh, he understood, but he was stuck in tradition, and he still had great fear of the circumcision crowd. And I like this verse. Uh, just here's what it says. Uh, this is Galatians 2, uh, where it talks about they were being compelled to be circumcised and so forth. And then verse 4, the matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and make us slaves, meaning going back to the law, put them under the law. It says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, uh, as uh, who, who was at work in Peter, for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when we were, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Notice, so they, God sent Peter and others to the Jews and he sent Paul to the Gentiles and Barnabas. I mean, this is how it was divvied up, right, between those groups that needed to be evangelized and brought into the church age. It were Jews, and they called them the circumcised. And then it says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor with the very thing we have been eager to do all along. 
And then he gives the example of what you said about when Peter came to Antioch. So Peter, he had to, he was worried because not only was he witnessing to the Jews, but uh, that was what was his task, like we call Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. So we should say Peter is the apostle to the Jews, right? <laughs> That's literally what we have, what we just read. So yeah, Peter did have some hypocrisy there in his actions, which I think was just about fear. He was afraid. And it says, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's verse 12 at the end. So there you have it. We can give in to fear. And I, I think fear will even shut your mouth if you give in to it. Like you could have an opportunity to witness, but then if you're afraid, you don't say a word. You button up your lip and you won't say nothing because of fear. This is, this is not uncommon. This is what fear can do. But love, perfect love is the motivation that we should have. It casts fear aside. Because now we know why we're here, what we're doing, and what we're, we're, our purpose is. And we're focused on that one point. So, I'll pause. Other thoughts out there before we close? All right. Going once. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will close out our session. Thank you, Father, for this time you've given us. We're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the continuity of it, how it makes spiritual sense as we continue to read and focus our attention. We thank you for the spirit of truth who is there all the time, leading and guiding us into all truth. We thank you for his ministry in our lives that it assists us in bringing us closer to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.